This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c everyone. Welcome to the Peds Doc Talk podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mona, where each week I hope to educate and inspire you in your journey through parenthood with information on your most common concerns as a parent and interviews with fellow parents and experts in the field. My hope is you leave each week feeling more educated, confident, and empowered in the decisions you make for your child. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode. I am so excited to have Erin, aka Food Science Babe, on Instagram. She is a chemical engineer and food scientist, and we are going to be talking all about the science of food. Thank you so much, Erin, for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what inspired you to start Food Science Babe? Um, So I've worked in the food industry now for uh, a little over 10 years, and Um, so I guess I should first say that I used to be an organic food consumer. I used to, um, believe some of the myths that I debunk now. And so when I started, you know, realizing that a lot of these things were myths, you know, the longer that I worked in the food industry, um, I, I just got really sick of seeing so much misinformation on social media. And, um, yeah, so I just... I was like, okay, I don't really see anyone specifically debunking um, things. You know, I saw a lot of dietitians and, you know, doctors and stuff like that trying to debunk um, misinformation, but I didn't specifically really see anyone sort of debunking like the food babe type stuff um, about the food industry and about GMOs and organic and all that kind of stuff. So I was just like, I'm going to start a page and start debunking some of this stuff and if people care about what I have to say. So that's kind of just how it got started. Well, I definitely am so glad I found your page. I actually found your page a couple months ago. I was saying how, you know, with Instagram, it kind of goes where you're, you discover a page and you're like, wow, how did I not know about this? And as a pediatrician, you know, I don't know nearly enough about food science. So I'm going to probably learn something from you too, which is super exciting because I've already learned so much from your page from just following you for a couple months. So I'm so glad you're here. Uh, and if you are not already, you need to follow Food Science Babe on Instagram. I'm going to obviously tag tag it in the show notes, uh, but a lot of different up-to-date news stories and so many different things. But we're going to be actually going through some questions that some of my followers have asked um, on my page about food science. Um, so the first question we're going to go through is, 
that I got asked is corn syrup in formulas bad? So the thing about corn syrup, it has gotten such a bad rap, um, basically just because, you know, it has replaced sugar in, in things like soda and, um, you know, things that people consider highly processed and not necessarily, you know, very healthy. And so I think, I think um, people just sort of think it's bad because it's in certain things that they think are unhealthy, whereas the actual ingredient itself is not, you know, it's not any less safe or less healthy than the sugar that it's replacing in things. So um, high fructose corn syrup has gotten a really bad rap, like especially because People, so there's so many studies that have been done in rats and mice with huge doses of just pure fructose. And so, and then it's, you know, all these horrible things that, you know, like there's even studies where they're like, you know, injecting it into the, <laughs> to the rats' brains and stuff like that. And so it's not real world exposure. It's, you know, it's on mice and rats at huge doses. And then also these studies are just pure pure fructose. And um, that's not what high fructose corn syrup is. The reason why it's called high fructose is because it has a higher level of fructose than just regular corn syrup. Um, but in actuality, the ratio of fructose to glucose is almost exactly the same as honey and um, as, as table sugar. So uh, it has just gotten a bad rap because of those those mouse studies and then um you know everyone sort of links it to obesity just because it is in it has replaced sugar in a lot of things but i mean in and of itself it's not a it's not an unsafe ingredient it's not something that you need to be avoiding um essentially it's just a you know sometimes producers will replace sugar because it's um lower cost but it's it's not making the product any less safe or any less healthy. So that is one I see people like specifically try to avoid, but um, it really doesn't make sense. And a lot of times it does make the product, um, you know, less expensive for those that can't afford something that is, you know, marketing it as we use real sugar or something like that. I mean, uh, corn syrup isn't less real or, um, you know, less clean or any of those words that you hear. So. Um, I just think it got a bad rap. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't really know. I think I, I do hear some people say like they specifically avoid it too, just because they say it's, it's in a lot of processed food. So if they're avoiding it, they're avoiding like what they deem to be unhealthy. But I mean, I guess if that's your reasoning, fine, but it in and of itself is not unsafe or something you specifically need to be avoiding. Yeah. And you said it perfectly less, like less, expensive doesn't necessarily mean less healthy, which I think, you know, obviously them like a lot of American, a lot of formulas. Um, I actually formula feed my son and it has corn syrup in it. Um, and so everyone's like, Oh, well, what about the corn syrup? I'm like, no, it's actually, it's a form of sugar, like you said, and it's perfectly fine. And it's, it's not obviously all sugar in the formula. It's not all corn, corn syrup. It's, it's a mixture and it's just a part of the thing that we're consuming, which is so much of what we're going to talk about. Um, but I think there is that sort of, I agree, there's this fear of the label, oh, corn syrup, it has to be bad. It means, like you said, I've heard that a lot about the, it leads to obesity. No, 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 there's so many different things that 
come into our lifestyle that can obviously impact our weight, including genetics. Um, but, but yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And the other baby related question I had was about rice cereal. So the common question we get is giving baby babies rice cereal going to give them arsenic poisoning. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if you've heard of Psy Moms, but they actually wrote an article about it. Like whenever this, I, I think it, I think it was like last year. It was like a huge story, and um, so I think that isn't. You know, I think a lot of times on my page, since I debunk things so much, everybody's just like, "Oh, that's pure fear mongering." And um, you know, that one, that one. I mean, there there is arsenic in rice, just based on you know how it's grown, the soil, the water. Um, can, you know, carry some arsenic in it. So, you know, it is something that is present. Um, there are ways that, you know, it's not the type of thing where it's like, oh, you should be avoiding rice altogether. I think the big message is just making sure like you're, you are varying your diet, your child's diet. So, you know, if they are eating rice cereal, like mix it up with some other grains, don't just, you know, make it always be rice. Um, and then there are some other things too that um, that's a and I can send you that article so you can link it here. But there they had some recommendations of like if you're cooking rice, there are ways to cook it um, like in more water. So you actually uh, pour some of the water off, and that gets rid of like 40 to 60 percent of the arsenic in the in the rice. So um, yeah, it's one of those things where obviously like we can't test every single batch of rice we're eating um, or you know feeding our kids, but it's not something where it's like, oh, you should be avoiding rice altogether. I think it's just make sure your diet is varied and um, it's, you know, just eating it here and there isn't going to add up to a toxic level of, um, you know, arsenic. And I think a lot of times when people hear that there is the presence of like anything like that in something, they just are, get afraid and they want to avoid it altogether. But I mean, there's traces of, things that you might consider to be harmful or toxic, but, but when, you know, you have to, you have to understand the dose and, um, you know, just the presence of these things in food doesn't make it, you know, automatically poisonous or toxic. So um, that is one of those things where, yeah, it is there. And um, I think just making sure you're varying your diet and your child's diet um, it really, you know, it's not like you need to really be worried about arsenic poisoning. Agree. I, I will link that. I'll, you know, either from Moms or if you send me, I'll link that, that the basically explanation of that article. Because I remember when that came out, I had just started my Instagram and I was like, whoa, 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 everyone. Like, it's OK. We're not going to we're not going to give our children poisoning by giving them one one dose of rice cereal for breakfast every day right if if you're eating the same food for every meal that's probably not good for anyone whatever it is right you need to you need to vary um vary your diet and i think there is a fear that article that you're mentioning there it was basically saying how you know there's metals in our food but the, like you said in when things are growing in the soil there are going to be metals per se right right yeah exactly and i think people people seem to generally understand it when it comes to like seafood and mercury, right? It's like, we understand like, oh, we shouldn't be eating those high sources like all the time, every day, like you need to vary it, vary that. And so I think, you know, it seems like people understand that and it's, it's sort of the same thing. I mean, um, but even in these, in these circumstances when it, you know, the baby food with the trace metals and stuff like that, I mean, those were very, very, 
low amounts. They were they were below the you know the safety levels, and so it really wasn't cause for concern. I think I think a lot of times you know it's good that obviously it's good that they're testing these things, and like we would need to know if it is you know something that is at a harmful level. But I think um, obviously they these studies get taken by the media and they get sensationalized. And everyone just reads the the title and it's like, oh my gosh, there's trace levels of, you know, heavy metals in, especially when it's like baby food. I mean, that's scary for parents. And so I think, you know, it's like, it's obviously good for foods to be tested to make sure they are safe. But then I think what happens is the media grabs those um, studies and then they, you know, they write an article people read the title and it's like it just gets blown way out of proportion and you know it's really not something that we need to necessarily be afraid about I mean like we said just varying the diet you know um, uh, just a presence of something doesn't mean that it's harmful so yeah well there's yeah there's two things that happen when that when the media you know comes out with these headlines one a parent will look at it and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was giving my child this this baby food or whatever it is. And they go through this whole guilt spiral and they're like, I, I'm a terrible mother, I'm a terrible father, whatever it is. And then the other thing is then people are shaming anyone else who buys those products when in reality they are very okay, you know? Um, and that's a huge problem in, in parenting, social media. And as a pediatrician who's also a mom, it's like, guys, it's it's actually it's okay. Like everyone's, everyone's doing things all right. You're not harming your children by buying, you know, these certain foods or giving them, you know, what one dose of rice cereal and what we, you know, what we're talking about here. Yeah. And then I think what also happens is, you know, food companies then also capitalize off of it and they'll, they'll be like, Oh, we test for this, you know, like we test for this heavy metal now and ours is free of whatever it is. And then they charge more. And then it just gets into this, you know, again, shaming. And then when parents buy that one that has that label on it, it's like, oh, you're buying that one still? It's harmful. <laughs> and it's like, it just almost turns into a marketing ploy. Um, I mean, that happens a lot with, you know, organic, non-GMO, um, the whole glyphosate and Cheerios. Like now a lot of, there's companies out there that are testing for glyphosate now. And there's like a glyphosate-free label. And it's like, oh my gosh, like it just, yeah, it's ridiculous. No, I remember when the that that article about the metals and food came out, and there there I can't I'm not going to name the company on this episode, but there was a baby food company that has like a subscription service, right? And their advertisements all changed to say we don't, you know, exactly what you said. We we test our food; um, it's free of metals. And then they're on the comments, everyone's like, "Wait, are you serious? Like, food grows in soil. Like, how are you how are you able to guarantee that there's no metals in food that is in the earth. Um, it was actually very interesting. And I, I used to follow them. And then I stopped following them because I was like, I don't, I can't, you know, I can't support a company that's not doing things, you know, doing things for basically marketing purposes and not evidence-based. So absolutely. So I want to, you mentioned about Cheerios. So let's talk about that because that's a common question I get also. Are Cheerios dangerous, toxic? What's, what's the deal about Cheerios? No. So what has happened is the EWG, which is the environmental working group. Um, so they're essentially a, they're essentially an activist organization. Like a lot of people think they're like a legit, you know, non-biased organization, but 
if you even just go to their funding page on their website, you can see the organic companies that they are funded by. So essentially what they do is they, what they have been doing recently specifically with all the fear around glyphosate is they've been testing and specifically testing children's food, which I think is um, interesting. You know, they try to scare parents specifically. Um, so there was a whole list of, you know, kids' cereal, like granola bars, all these things that they had tested and found traces of glyphosate in. Um, the first thing was that, um, I don't know if they have changed their testing method, um, but I know when they did those Cheerios tests, the testing method they were using wasn't even a validated testing method to find for glyphosate. So that was like the first thing. Um, the second thing was they were testing it themselves. And so, I mean, their data isn't peer reviewed. Nobody else is looking it over. They're essentially just testing it using a non-validated method and then publishing it on their website. Um, so really, I mean, we can't even really put any confidence into the numbers in the first place, but, but let's even say that they are correct. Um, it's just ridiculous. The tiny, tiny, tiny amounts that they're finding. I mean, they're, they're, they're measuring these levels in parts per billion. And um, I mean, that's very, very, very small. I mean, if anything, it's showing us how safe our food is. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I've been doing every time they come out with one of these reports, like I do the calculations, and it's like, it was something like a 30 pound child would have to eat 600 bowls of Cheerios a day for an extended period of time to get to, you know, a potentially unsafe level of glyphosate. And so, um, and I think it comes back to, you know, what we were talking about, tra you know, traces of something people think is scary. They, they think that it shouldn't have any, and if it has any, that it's unsafe. But I mean, we have to remember that literally every chemical has a toxic dose. And so, um, literally the Cheerios themselves would be, you would reach a toxic dose of Cheerios <laughs> before you would the glyphosate. So we have to remember that. I mean, everything has a toxic dose, whether it's natural or synthetic. I mean, it doesn't tell you anything about its toxicity. And so when you're, when you're afraid of these tiny, tiny levels of uh, pesticide residues in foods, um, I mean, you literally wouldn't be able to eat anything if you were afraid because even though they're only testing for one single residue, I mean, there are residues in probably all of our foods. I mean, organic farming uses pesticides. Um, plants themselves produce pesticides as an, a natural defense mechanism out in nature. So, I mean, there have been studies showing that humans, the, you know, 99% of pesticides humans consume are actually the ones that are produced by the plants. So, I mean, these tiny, tiny amounts that we're getting through the, you know, the residues um, from farmers applying them, like, it's just, it doesn't make sense to be specifically afraid of those tiny, tiny, tiny amounts um, of these specific pesticide residues. And what I always find, like, just crazy is that glyphosate specifically is like one of the least toxic pesticides that farmers have available to them. Um, I mean, the acute toxicity is less than table salt. And so we're talking about something that, you know, is one of the safest, um, most effective pesticides that 
farmers have. And um, I just think it's crazy when when people are specifically like singling that one out because like there are quite a few in both organic and conventional farming that are a lot more toxic. Not that any of the levels have to be, you know, we have to fear, but it's just crazy that they're specifically targeting that one when it is one of the safest ones. So it really doesn't make any sense. Um, they just came out with their new hummus report and I calculated that out and like a 150 pound adult would have to eat over like 12 gallons of hummus a day. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Like <laughs> it makes no sense to be afraid of that. So, I mean, if you follow any of that, then you're like you said earlier, you're not going to eat anything. You're literally going to be stressed out about every right. food that you buy. And you're probably going to stress yourself out to a medical condition. Yeah. Like, oh, for I'm, sure. yeah. I'm serious. So like the amount of stress. Yeah, yeah. The amount of stress parents are putting on themselves about I can't do this. I can't do this. It might, I'm going to you know, cause problems in my kid. That stress is worse than what you're oh, actually yeah. probably being told that's dangerous for you. Right. And like specifically right now during a pandemic too, and they're still coming out with these reports of, you know, like, oh, you need to throw your hummus away. And I mean, right now, especially like going to the store is going to be more harmful, <laughs> potentially, you know, getting exposed to coronavirus <laughs> because you had to throw your hummus away from <laughs> parts per billion you know, levels of glyphosate. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Like, I just think it's it's especially harmful right now um, during a pandemic. Like, I just think it's ridiculous that they keep coming out with these reports. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess meals. Chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice keep kitchen time to a minimum with factor meals because they're ready in two minutes no shopping prepping cooking or cleanup i work from home and love the convenience and how delicious factor meals are head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20 percent off your next box that's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains.
organic food. It's this, like you said earlier, that you used to do organic and then you kind of were like, what's going on here? Um, is organic food better? Is there certain foods that are better organic? What's the deal with that? Um, so what organic is, is, I mean, there are specific um, regulations that have to be met in order to get the organic label on your food. So things like um, they can't use, well, they can use some synthetic pesticides, but a lot of the synthetic pesticides that conventional farmers use, they can't use. They have to use um, what they consider to be naturally derived pesticides. Um, they can't use GMOs. Um, they can't use antibiotics um, on animals, things like that. So a lot of these things sound good to the consumer. Um, it, you know, it's essentially a marketing label um, because none of it translates to safer food or healthier food. I mean, there's, there's many different studies that show that, you know, it's not, the, these regulations aren't translating into safer or healthier food. Um, and, you know, when they, when they, when they don't allow for synthetic pesticides, it just really doesn't make sense in terms of, you know, the environment or human health, um, because a lot of times the organic pesticides are worse for the environment and they're worse for the health of the people applying them or, you know, they're not as effective, so they have to use more. So the fact that they have these restrictions, um, it really actually you know, it ends up actually making it worse for the environment. I know one thing, one reason why I used to buy organic is I thought I wasn't really sure if it was necessarily healthier, but I always thought it was better for the environment. And um, it's not like it's actually worse because it's so it's it's less efficient than conventional um, because they don't allow for GMOs. So it takes 20 to 40 percent more land to grow the same amount of food um, organically as it does conventionally. Um, and so really these restrictions um, are kind of just used as marketing. They sound really good to the consumer because the consumer thinks natural is safer and better when it's not. Um, the whole antibiotic thing is actually one reason why I won't buy organic um, meat or animal products because, um, so, you know, just like humans, uh, animals get sick and sometimes they require antibiotics. And so, the fact that organic um, doesn't allow for that, uh, you know, they either have to try to use natural methods, which might not work as well, or um, if they end up having to administer antibiotics, that that animal, that those products from that animal can't be sold as organic. And so, um, you know, there are situations where you're withholding antibiotics from a sick animal and it's, you know, they need antibiotics sometimes. Um, but again, it sounds good to the consumer because the consumer thinks, oh, well, then there's no antibiotics in the food, but there's no antibiotics in any food. Even when antibiotics are administered to an animal, it has to go through a withdrawal period. And so and then also the product has to be tested to make sure there's no residue. Um, so nothing you're eating, you know, the milk you're drinking, the, the meat you're eating, whether it was from a conventional animal or organic um, there aren't any antibiotics in the product itself. So there's just a lot of marketing labels. I mean, you see no, no hormones added or, or no antibiotics. And these things are all marketing labels. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of the packages of chicken say like no hormones added, like hormones aren't even allowed. So it's, it's purely marketing. Um, 
so many of these things are just just marketing and then i mean the studies show that organic isn't safer it isn't more nutritious so um it really is just a marketing label and same thing goes for fruit right like organic fruit versus non-organic fruit yeah i mean they're it's they're using pesticides there are similar there's similar levels of pesticide residues on both organic and conventional um they're super super low again like parts per billion levels and so you know the usda uh tests produce every year as a part of their you can actually go online and look at all of the data that they collect um but it's their pdp their pesticide data program and they collect data um to make sure that the pesticide residues are below the tolerance levels and you know the pesticide residues are regular regularly detected at levels you know hundreds to thousands of times below the con very conservatively set tolerance levels so our food is incredibly safe from a pesticide residue perspective so you're not you're not getting any safer by buying organic um that's just one of the probably one of i would say the number one myth surrounding organic food is that people think they don't use pesticides and they do but at the same time that's not a cause for concern um regarding organic or conventional food so Oh, me and my husband get into this all the time because he buys organic fruit and I, you know, it's obviously more expensive. And I'm like, just go to the regular grocery store. It's like there's a local grocery store that has non-organic fruit. That's amazing. It's fresh. It, it tastes great. And he's like, well, I like it. And I'm like, we, we literally are not on the same page. And I'm like, I, I get it. Like I even and I learned so much from, you know, obviously how you defined it in terms of the, um, you know, the label and also the the pest like the pesticides or the antibiotics. I had no idea about that. Um, mm -hmm. now I do want to ask about GMO because I, again, get asked this. I never learned about GMO in medical school residency. It was after when I became a physician that I was like, people are asking me this. I want to do more research, but what does GMO stand for and why does it get a bad rap? So GMO, I kind of hate the term. It's not a very scientific term. So GMO literally stands for genetically modified organism. Um, it's not very scientific, essentially. So humans have been modifying food for thousands of years via, you know, crossbreeding, creating hybrids. Um, so, you know, there are there are multiple ways that humans have been genetically modifying crops. Um, so crossbreeding, obviously, most people don't have an issue with that. We've been doing that for thousands of years. Um, there is something called mutagenesis, which has been around since the 1930s, which a lot of people don't know about, but essentially um, they, they would use radiation to induce mutations in seeds um, and then propagate them to see what changed. Um, and so obviously those two methods, the crossbreeding and mutagenesis are, um, you know, not very precise. Uh, you kind of just do it and see what happens see what see what traits are expressed um so it kind of takes a long time to to develop a crop that way when you're doing those ways so um so the <laughs> so what has been termed gmo now is the more precise more recent way of modifying crops um so bioengineered would be the more scientific term or genetically engineered would be the more scientific term so Essentially, um, scientists would be, you know, inserting sp 
specific genes for whatever trait they want in that crop. So, so much more precise, obviously, way less unintended consequences than, than these previous methods. Um, but it's sort of been taken by, by activist groups. Um, I think back in the 70s, it was Greenpeace that sort of started fear-mongering over, I don't know if it was them that termed them GMO specifically, but they essentially took this one modification technique that actually is way more precise um, and, you know, way more efficient. And they essentially didn't really understand it. They were afraid of it. So they started um, scaring consumers that it was creating Franken foods or, you know, these foods that were um, unsafe or, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think it was just consumers didn't really understand um, what it was. And now, you know, we have decades of data now and we know that uh, bioengineered crops are just as safe and at least as nutritious as their non-bioengineered counterparts. And so, um, so what has happened since then is the non-GMO project, that's the butterfly label um, on foods that says non-GMO, so ever since that's been a thing, I think um, it really just, it doesn't educate consumers. Um, that organization specifically purports to be educating consumers, but in reality, all it's doing is scaring consumers. You know, you see a label that says non-GMO on something. And if you don't really know about it, you just immediately assume, well, if this specific label is telling me it doesn't have GMO, then like it must be bad. So um, I think that label specifically has really created a lot of unnecessary fear around GMOs because anytime you have a label saying this doesn't contain this thing, like consumers just automatically assume, well, then that must be bad. Otherwise, like why would this label be a thing otherwise? And so that organization um, is essentially an anti-GMO organization. And um, some of the food companies that I've worked for in the past, I've been responsible for getting their products approved through the non-GMO project to get that label. And it's just such an arbitrary label. Like it doesn't, you know, it's like they're taking, they're demonizing one modification technique um, when in reality, I mean, I think the thing that consumers um, have a hard time understanding too is that like, the end product of these modification techniques is what is tested for safety. And like, that's what needs to be, um, you know, as long as the end product is safe and it's being tested um, and it's just as nutritious as, you know, what they were modifying, um, that's what's important. It's not like the process used to get there shouldn't be, you know, everyone's scared about, specifically genetically engineered when, when it's like, well, the, the, the end product is safe. So why does it matter which modification technique was used to get there? Um, so I think that's really important to understand that, you know, the end products, as long as the end products are safe, it shouldn't matter which genetic modification technique was used to get there. But then also um, it's just crazy to me that consumers are the most afraid of that technique because it is so highly regulated. Um, it takes something like $130 million and like seven years to get through all of the safety testing and, and all of the 
um, environmental testing in order to bring a GMO to market. Um, whereas a crop created through these other modification techniques like are not regulated very much at all. And so it's just kind of crazy to me that the one that's the most precise, the most regulated is the one that consumers are the most afraid of. And I mean, there have been surveys and studies that have been done that have shown that the people that are the most afraid of GMOs really know the least about them. So I think it's just about um, not really understanding what they are and then all those labels saying non-GMO, it makes consumers afraid of them. And then also um, that non-GMO label can be put on anything, whether it has a GMO counterpart or not. So, you know, you'll see it on things like orange juice and there aren't even GMO oranges. So it's just, it's, it's crazy. Like it just doesn't even make sense in a lot of cases, but even when it is on something that has, you know, a GMO counterpart, it, it still doesn't make sense because it's not telling you anything about the safety or the nutrition of the product. It's essentially just making consumers afraid of GMOs. So, um, and there are only 10 GMO crops approved in the US. And so I think, I think that's another misconception. I think a lot of people think that if something doesn't have that non-GMO label, like it must be GMO, but that non-GMO label is voluntary. Um, companies pay that organization essentially for that label. And it's largely a marketing label. I mean, all of the companies that I worked at that use that label, um, it was a marketing decision, you know, it was never a decision around, oh, it makes it safer, or healthier, you know, it was always who's our target market. Okay, they'll pay more for this label. I mean, it's, it's, it's 100% a marketing label. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything helpful about about the product. So, um, so yeah, I mean, the fear, the fear around GMOs just really is not evidence, evidence based at all. And then what ends up happening is that a lot of, you know, developing countries that, uh, you know, GMOs, there's something called um, golden rice that was developed for countries that um, are, a lot of the people are deficient in vitamin A. And so it was something that would increase the amount of vitamin A in rice. And the fear of GMOs and these activist organizations like, are making it really hard for some of those countries to approve these things. And so it's just, you know, it's not, it's not something that's just, you know, it's like, Oh, well, I don't, if I'm against it and it doesn't harm anyone. I mean, it is harmful for specifically for countries that could really benefit um, from this technology and they're not allowing it because they're afraid from, you know, what activist organizations say, or like, I mean, there's activist organizations that even go to these countries and destroy like whole plots of rice because they don't agree with it. So um, it is really detrimental, the fear um, for developing countries. And then also, I mean, just it does allow for um, farming to be more efficient. So food costs to be lower. And so it really, it really would be detrimental if it, if it was something that, you know, wouldn't be allowed. So, um, yeah, there's really no evidence as to, you know, behind the fear for GMOs, which is sort of a marketing thing. Yeah. Similar to the 
organic and <laughs> whatnot. What about uh, food coloring, like food dyes, food coloring? I think there was, I believe, like red red dye or uh, things like that. People were asking about the dangers or is it dangerous? No. So there's a lot of specifically fear around red food coloring and ADHD and autism and um, there is really no data to back any of that. Um, so I know in Europe, they have to have some sort of disclaimer every time they use specific colors. And it has something to do with it potentially exacerbating symptoms of children that have ADHD. But the study that that was based on was essentially they gave kids um, there were like four drinks. So there was a control and then there were three different drinks with multiple different colors in them and a preservative. And so, and then teachers and parents observed the children's behavior. And like, that's what that warning label is based off of. I mean, it was based off of literally like, yeah, like parents and teachers observing behavior and then it, there were so many variables involved because like mm. each drink had like multiple different colors in it and a preservative. And so it's just crazy. Like the, the fear, if you actually look at the studies that these like fears are based off of or these claims that people are making, it's like, no, like that's not there. There is no clear like um, cause of, you know, children's ADHD, their symptoms getting worse. I mean, I think a lot of times too, parents just, um, you know, it's a lot of anecdotes that get kind of perpetuated and it's like, well, every time my kid has this, like they get hyper. And um, also too, I mean, it's like, okay, so they were eating a birthday cake with <laughs> colors. They were at a birthday party and, you know, like they had a lot of energy, like it probably wasn't the colors. And so I, I hear a lot of stories like that where, there isn't, you know, there aren't well controlled, controlled studies showing that it has any effect. And it, and it has been studied quite a bit, too. So um, it's not just like lack of studies. It's, it's that there aren't clear, there isn't like a clear, um, you know, thing between colors and it creating these, these effects in children. So um, and then also the thing again, people a lot of times default to like natural colors and they think natural colors are safer and they're better. But in reality, um, so like the F, D and C colors that you see like on labels, like the yellow number six or those, so those are called certified colors. And those have gone through extensive testing before they um, are approved. And um, a lot of the natural colors are, have gone through way less testing than these certified colors. And so um, it's just, again, to be like afraid of the ones that have been tested quite a bit and then to be okay with like the natural ones just because they're natural, um, it just really doesn't make sense because they're, they haven't been tested even, you know, close to the amount of the certified colors. So, but yeah, there's no these things are in food at such a low amount too. I mean, like when you formulate a product with a color, you're not really having to put much in there at all. So yeah, I think this, I think the fear has a lot to do with just anecdotes from people. And um, 
I don't know. Again, I think it's one of those things that can be really detrimental. There was a page that was sort of fear mongering over it um, and telling telling parents of, you know, kids with autism, like not to be feeding their um, autistic kids, you know, anything with food colors in it. And it's just like it's I, my daughter is disabled and she has, you know, a lot of things that she can't eat and she eats very specific things. So she has cerebral palsy. So um, just motor wise, she just can't eat some things. But I just, you know, I know there are a lot of, of um, autistic children that, you know, are very picky about what they're eating. And so I think it's, it can be really harmful if it's like, not only like, is your kid already very limited in their food choices, but now like you're hearing this stuff about, oh, no, now I can't feed them things with colors in them. And this was their favorite thing. So I just think it can be so detrimental, um, specifically when you're talking about, you know, kids that already have a limited amount of things that they eat and then scaring parents when there is no evidence behind it. Like I would get it if there was actually evidence behind it, but there's not. You're just scaring parents and then you're limiting their children's choices even more. So I just I get really frustrated with that kind of misinformation because, um, yeah, it's just it's it's. Like I said, my daughter already, you know, has some, you know, motor issues and stuff. And if, and if I was afraid of all these things I was hearing, like her diet would be even more limited um, because of all these, this misinformation. So it really frustrates me. The fear, like you said it perfectly, like the already having a limited palate and then now they can't, they're trying to pick and choose out of like, they only had five things and now there's only two things. And that just goes, this, I mean, this whole conversation that we're having goes towards this sort of fear mongering that parents are trying, even any child, they're trying to feed their child a variety of different things and they're picking and choosing, okay, well, I only can have non-GMO, I can only have organ um, organic. And the child, there's so much food out there that may not fit the label that, you know, the fear mongering is supporting. So it's really, it's stressful. And I, I appreciate you so much for obviously your Instagram page and for, you know, obviously bringing the evidence base because there is no place in parenting for fear mongering when it's not science based. So, yeah. You made it halfway through an episode, so you must be loving the show. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel where I share answers to all of the common topics submitted to me regarding child health, development, and debunking all that misinformation you hear online. My goal is for PDT to be a one-stop shop for your searching needs. Bye-bye late-night Googling. So make sure to go to YouTube and search Peds Doc Talk TV. Hit that subscribe button and binge watch all the amazing episodes and episodes to come. Have suggestions for future videos? Make sure to chat in the community section on my YouTube channel. Becoming a new mom does not come with a manual, but I'm trying to get as close to it as possible. Are you expecting a baby or know somebody who is? Make sure to grab my first year course, The New Mom Survival Guide. The on-demand course contains modules covering parenting in the first year, newborn feeding like breast and formula feeding, newborn sleep and infant sleep, introduction of solids, safety, baby care how-tos, developmental milestones, teething, and so much more. With videos and printables, you will feel supported 
through the first year. The course also has a roadmap that takes you through what to expect visit by visit so you can feel more confident and calm in the choices that you make and the stages that you'll go through during your baby's first year. By purchasing, you also get access to our Facebook community to troubleshoot issues or concerns. It also makes a great gift that can support a new mom through her motherhood journey. Check out the New Mom Survival Guide by visiting pedsdoctalk.com and searching our popular courses. I forgot to ask at the beginning. So obviously, I know obviously you're a chem- chemical engineer and you're a food scientist. What exactly, what, what do you do for a living? You said that you were like consulting with company or, you know, um, manufacturers of food. Yeah. So um, when I first started out, I was with a large um, conventional ingredient company um, doing um, R&D work on their sort of snack products. So I was working a lot on different cereal products, granola bars. Um, and in that role, I was I was um, developing products on the bench top, but then I was also scaling them up to full scale production. So going into the full scale manufacturers and manufacturing it um, for the store shelf. So I did that for about five years. And then I personally was an organic foods consumer at the time. So I sought out a more natural and organic company to work for. And so that's when I worked for that company where I had to get their products um, non-GMO verified. And and that's sort of what got me started on the track of, hmm, this seems really arbitrary. Like (laughs) this, this certification that I'm getting seems kind of arbitrary. And like, like I said, you know, it's like, this is totally just like being decided in the marketing meeting. So that's kind of when I started like questioning all of it. Um, but I still, I still just assumed organic was better. Didn't really look into it. Um, so I worked at that company for a couple years and then I worked at, well, and then I had my daughter and so she ended up um, having some disabilities. So I ended up staying home with her. So ever since then I've been consulting um, with, I, I mostly stay home with her and then I just work part-time now. So I'm consulting with small startup food companies. Um, I mean, ironically, some of them do decide to get their products uh, organic certified and non-GMO certified. You know, as a food scientist, I, I, I help develop products and however they want to market them is how they market them. So sometimes it is kind of frustrating, um, you know, working on a product and, and a lot of times, you know, the food, the especially like small um, food companies of people like just starting up, they also have false, uh, you know, false perceptions of organic. And so, you know, they're like, oh, we want this to be organic and we want this to be non-GMO. And it's like, do you actually even really, you know, understand what that means? And a lot of times they don't, but a, a lot of times they do. And it's like, well, yeah, but I know I can sell it for more. So it's just, it's, it's, it's marketing. That's all it is. <laughs> you, you mentioned the EWG. So the environmental working group, how they're basically advancing it in a way because they're supported by a lot of private companies, right? Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, what is, what do they get wrong in terms of their research? Is there anything that they get right? Um, so I, I mean, I haven't looked into like some of the other things that they do as far as like environmental, I, I haven't really looked into that stuff. I've just looked into some of the stuff that they've done with food and then cosmetics. Um, just because some of the other science-based accounts I follow, they kind of, they kind of do what I do, but more like in the skincare and cosmetic side of it. But, um, so I've written and I wrote an article about like the dirty dozen, but essentially I know as far as like cosmetics and foods go, they 
never take dose into account when they report these things, which is a huge issue because obviously if you are saying something is that, you know, harmful or something is toxic or something is dirty, you know, they're dirty dozen. Um, and you're just saying, Oh, there are this number of pesticides, but you're not at all taking into account like the dose. Um, so yeah, I'll just talk about like the dirty dozen specifically. Um, so essentially what they do is they take that USDA data that I was telling you about that essentially tells us how safe our food is and is showing us like how low our pesticide level level or residue levels are. They're taking that data from the USDA and what they're doing is they're just counting the number of detections. So I'll just make up an example. This isn't accurate, but let's say strawberries are always at the top of their list. So they'll look at the detections on strawberries and there will be, let's say there's like five, five different pesticide residues on strawberries. And then let's say blueberries is like number two and there's like four different pesticide residues. That's like, that's literally how they make the list. Like they don't take into account the dose. They don't take into account what the chemicals are because obviously each, each chemical has a different toxic dose. So you need to be taking into account what the chemical is what the dose is and so they're taking this data that's showing like yes there are residues but they're at very 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 low levels and they're taking that and just saying like well this one has five residues so it's at the top of our list and you shouldn't be buying it and it it makes no sense because we're talking about extremely low levels um so they're you know like everything on their list it's not it's not unsafe you shouldn't be buying organic I mean, the other thing is too, they're not even, they're not even um, taking into account organic. Like they're not telling people that organic is using pesticides. They're not, they're not using that data in their, they're literally just taking like the conventional ones and scaring people about those. Um, but there's a website you can go to, it's called safefruitsandveggies.com and you can put in like, like man, woman, child, and then you can pick strawberries. And it shows you how many servings you would have to eat, sort of like the calculations I did with the Cheerios. And it's something like a, an adult woman would have to eat like 425 servings of strawberries a day to reach like a harmful level of pesticide residues. So it's just, it's, it's ridiculous that they're even scaring consumers about it. But again, I mean, their whole point is to get consumers to buy organic. And so they're scaring consumers about conventional so that they'll buy organic. And that's the entire purpose of that whole dirty dozen thing. And then the same, the same goes for a lot of their um, reporting on cosmetics too. It's the same thing. Like it's like they'll say something that people assume is harmful, some sort of ingredient that everyone's afraid of and they don't take into account dose or, um, you know, exposure or any of those things. They just say it contains this and then it, and then people are afraid of it. Well, dose. And then also you had mentioned earlier, like, um, when you're talking about the studies with like mice and rats that how it's being administered, right? Because even with like yeah. sunscreens, right. There was like a sunscreen study that showed that if they ingested the sun, like that, that chemical, then of course they would have, I, but you're not ingesting sunscreen. Yeah. So it's, so it's inferring it in a wrong way, right? Exactly. I mean, you'll see a lot of the studies, um, so many of the studies that people send me for, you know, glyphosate too. It's like, they're literally injecting rats with glyphosate. Like that has nothing to do with 
how humans are being exposed to these chemicals. So yeah, you have to really understand, you know, and a lot of times people won't look at the studies, you know, they just read it and they're like, oh, that's scary. You know, I'm going to just buy organic to be safe. And, and it's just, it's, they're planting any sort of little seed of doubt they can in consumers. And so, you know, it's like, well, if I can afford, and that's kind of where I was at too in the past, you know, I was always like, well, if I can afford organic, like I might as well just do it. But, um, you know, again, it's detrimental to those people that can't afford organic because now they're afraid that they're poisoning their children or they make sure they buy organic and then they just end up eating less produce because they can't afford as much. And so like these things aren't just harmless misinformation that's going around. They, it, like, it, it is really harmful, too. So, um, I mean, there have been surveys that have been done where people that end up buying organic because of the dirty dozen, they end up buying less produce overall, which is obviously going to be worse for your diet. So, um, so yeah, I think it's important to just be making sure like anytime you see somebody, um, even my followers, like once they understand this, like make sure you're like commenting whenever you see the dirty dozen, you know, to make sure that it doesn't just keep getting um, perpetuated. I feel like the more, because a lot of people go into the comments and they read the comments and it's like, if nobody's saying anything about it, like they're going to, they're going to, you know, just believe it. But if they see a bunch of people commenting and being like, hey, this isn't true, like you don't need to be afraid of it. So I think it's important to like, once you do understand this to like, if you see it, just comment on it too and say like, hey, this isn't necessarily evidence-based. Like I still see it like on diet, like dietitians still sometimes promote the dirty dozen. And um, a lot of times they just don't know, you know, I'll, I'll comment and be like, hey, are you aware that like this isn't evidence-based and, you know, Sometimes they don't receive the information very well, but, you know, sometimes they're like, oh, I actually had no idea. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy how like even dietitians still are promoting the dirty dozen. Um, so yeah. Well, it's so easy for like, for example, I, I went on the EWG website about a couple years ago and the website is really nice mm -hmm. and you don't see any of the site, like the articles, the peer review, you know, obviously they're not doing peer, peer reviewed um, uh, research and it looks nice. It looks official. And then I started looking, I started like searching the products I use and I was like, wait, that makes no sense. This product is fine. I, I recommend it for my, my patients. And then I actually saw the funding and I, my mind was blown. And then when I started following you was when I started to kind of obviously learn more. And I was like, yes, I thought I was the only one. Because like you said, even besides dietitians, even there are some physicians that talk about EWG as this sort of, um, you know, platform of, hey, this is how you can find the best products for your family. Yeah. Um, and it's not it's not the case. Is right. the thing the thing dirty app that is not related to EWG, right? That's separate. Gosh, I always forget. I don't know. I can't, I think EWG does have, I can't keep the app straight, but I've asked, I've asked a few of those, um, uh, other science-based accounts that do sort of more of the skincare, like that kind of side of it. And I've asked, cause I get, every time I talk about think dirty or the EWG, you know, everybody's like, well, what, what is a good app? And so I've asked some of these other accounts and they're like, there really isn't one. There isn't a good science-based app. So I think it is important to make sure you are following, you know, science-based accounts. And, you know, I, I think once you kind of start 
understanding like um you know if they're trying to scare you about a specific ingredient or chemical and they're literally not telling you dose ever in the entire conversation i mean it's like that's a huge red flag or if you click on the study and you know it's like oh the sample size was like five people or it was in rats or it was in mice i mean like some of these things you can just start kind of like seeing the red flags like once you once you kind of start seeing it everywhere but um it's tough because there really isn't a good science-based app and there probably isn't because in order to get a product on the market i mean it has to go through specifically like when i was talking about that sunscreen i mean sunscreen has to go through some pretty rigorous safety testing so if there was a science-based app it would probably just be like hey, all of it's fine, you guys. <laughs> like, yeah. So, yeah, probably because, if you're, you're very could, right. because if it's on the market, we, yeah. we regulated it, right. right. And do you think, I mean, kind of bring like going on that topic, do you think that there is good regulation in the United States for food? Like, and I want to clarify the FDA versus the USDA. They're both, I actually so, didn't know the so difference yeah. and what they so do the different. USDA, yeah. um, so the USDA is more involved in like approving like animal products, um, mm -hmm. like milk, dairy, um, you know, doing all the grading for all those kind of kinds of things. Um, and then FDA, which I, I've been I, in the food industry, I typically work like in snack products and stuff like that. So the regulations that those products fall under are all like FDA regulations, all of the um, nutrition panels, all of that kind of stuff falls under FDA regulations. Um, so, and then obviously the USDA is um, the organic, USDA certified organic. So that label comes from the USDA. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's the other thing too. I think a lot of people think like anything can just be developed and like put on the market. And it's like, no, these things have to go like new ingredients, like novel ingredients, like they have to go through safety testing and they're, you know, we're not just able, able to like come up with something new and just put it on the market and see what happens. Like that's, I think a lot of people think like these things aren't being tested before they go to the market. And um, I mean, they are. So yeah, I don't, I don't think there's really anything that consumers like specifically have to be afraid about other than, you know, if there's a recall on lettuce that was contaminated, like, yes, the, I think these things, these things that people are afraid of are, I think what's happening is like our food is so safe that like these tiny, tiny things that, you know, the EWG and groups like that are bringing up just get blown way out, so out of proportion because it's like our food is so safe. We rarely have to worry about anything other than like, you know, recalls of listeria or E. coli, things like that. Obviously, we have to be worried about. But I almost feel like it's like our food's so safe that like we're just taking these tiny, tiny things and just blowing them like way out of proportion <laughs> it's just like our food's so safe like we don't need to be worrying about these little things and yeah I mean it's it's just it's it's funny because I'm now a mom so when I was a when I, before I became a mother right as just a pediatrician I I obviously was like yeah this is fine and then now with being a mother I'm on you know, mommy groups or things like that. And I'm hearing all the parent, you know, like, oh, well, that's not safe. And I'm like, wait, is it? No, what do you, am I in this bizarro <laughs> alternate world where I'm, am I wrong? Like I actually was thinking for a long time and I'm like, no. So I started obviously thinking about obviously what I know and what mm -hmm. I've learned. And I was like, no, this has actually become this 
middle class, upper class sort of way of looking at things like yeah. almost like a, a curse that if you're higher, if you have higher education, you're seeking out all this information that's not evidence based. Right. Like yeah. it's kind of like it's kind of like the anti-vax movement. Oh, like the anti-vax sure. movement is highly edu- for the most part, a lot of highly educated yep. people. And it's yeah. like what what went wrong that we're we should if we're educated, we should understand science. Right. <laughs> I know. And it's just, it's, it's frustrating because it is, then it is disproportionately impacting the people that, you know, can't afford these things. And it's like, well, yeah, if you can afford it and like, you're afraid and it's like, okay, whatever, I'll just buy organic, like no big deal. You know, it's not necessarily impacting you negatively. It's when that shaming and that misinformation impacts the people that can't afford it. And then they're like, you know, just the, the messaging of like, oh, well, you know, if you can't afford it, then you just can't be eating healthy. And, um, you know, it's just like even fear mongering around like canned and, and frozen and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's just ridiculous because then, you know, people that might not be able to afford fresh and organic, they feel like they feel like they can't be as healthy. And it's just like, it's not true. And it's, and again, like the whole stress over worrying about like, am I poisoning my kids? Like, you know, it's just that's going to be way more detrimental for your health than buying conventional and buying frozen, buying canned, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's just so unfortunate. I mean, I think if you want to buy organic and you like it, you you know, you like it for some reason, like that's fine. You know, I think a lot of my information, a lot of times, you know, people will ask me, like, why are you so against organic? And it's like, I'm not against it. Like, if you and if you like that, if you have a an organic farm that's near you and you enjoy it and you want to support them, like that's fine. It's when you get into the shaming of it and it's like acting like it's superior and saying, well, that's poison, that's toxic. Like that's the issue. Like if you want to buy organic and you like it, great, go for it. Like it's the, the issue is around the fear mongering and shaming people. Like if they're not eating that way, because it's not evidence based. Like it's you know. Um, so yeah. And, and I've seen you do that on your page and I get it because some people who are so on the other realm will be like, well, you're not, you're not understanding where we're coming from. Like, you know, she actually, you actually do. And you've actually posted, you've actually posted like, please donate that food to someone who needs it. Like, don't just throw out your hummus. Don't just throw out your sunscreen. I know with the whole sunscreen thing that happened, like, just don't throw it out because it's okay to use. And that's just good food or good products down the drain. Right. Of fear. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's so frustrating. It's like, okay, so you, you know, it's like, that's, that's, if that's your choice to like not use it and you want to go to the store and buy something different, like that's, that's fine. Like if you have the opportunity to do that, like, sure, go ahead. But at the same time, like, yeah, go donate it. It's fine. Somebody else could use that product. Like it's not unsafe. Um, but yeah, I think I think any and that one was specifically ridiculous because it was based off of one single anecdote, like literally one person. And <laughs> it was just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, anecdotal and I'm sure people listening understand the difference, but anecdotal basically means a story that someone thinks that, hey, this happened, so it must have caused this outcome when obviously that's not always the case. It could have just been a one situation thing. Um, and that's super dangerous. I agree because that happens a lot in pediatrics with various things and usually something with a chemical involved, which like you said, the dose makes the poison, not the 
the actual chemical that is in everything pretty much. Um, Aaron, I, I could talk to you forever about this stuff. I'm just so grateful for you and, and your page and obviously bringing all the evidence-based information um, to social media. What would be a final message you have for parents listening? I think just don't be, you know, don't be afraid of your food. Like I think specifically um, parents of young children, like, I didn't even realize until I became a mom that like we are specifically targeted with these things. Like, you know, it's not a coincidence that the EWG is specifically testing kids foods. Like they're, you know, it's like this is being targeted specifically towards parents of young children, because obviously if anything is being called toxic, you know, we're going to be afraid and we're not going to buy it. So I think just making sure like you understand like the red flags involved and like just, you know, stop being afraid of safe and healthy foods because um, the stress is going to be way worse than, you know, buying the conventional and understanding that it is safe. So. Oh, yes. And I mean, I know you're obviously a mother and professional on social media. So am I. And the amount of DMs I get or comments like, hey, you do this and you're doing that. I'm like, yeah, I have, I'm doing this because I know it's safe. I know how to do things safely. And it's just, it's so interesting to me, this culture of modern parenting. And, you know, if we, if I were to talk to my parents about this, they're like, yeah, we gave you all this stuff and you right. I'm fine. Exactly. Like, I, I think you probably drink red fruit, di- like, you know, <laughs> red, red, uh, punch like every, yeah. every day and you turned out. Yeah. Fine. So, yeah. I mean, it's totally, like you said so many times in this episode, you said like, it's, it's a combination of various foods, right? You're not going to give rice cereal every time, like every meal, you're not going to, you're, you're doing everything in moderation and that's what life is and, mm-hmm. and including with our food. Yeah, definitely. I think people are getting too far into like these granular granular levels of this one ingredient needs to be avoided or this one thing, you know, and it's like, overall, if you have a healthy diet and a healthy lifestyle, like these things that people are considering to be like toxic and, you know, all the junk food, all those like shaming types of terms, you know, it's like these things can fit into an overall healthy diet and like, yeah, just having rules around, you know, I can't eat this ingredient. I can't eat this food. Like, that's going to be worse for your health than just like understanding, yes, this can be a part of a healthy diet. Like, no, this one thing isn't going to kill me. Like, so yeah. Yeah, everyone, you have to follow Food Science Babe. I'm going to actually add again the handle on my show notes because she really debunks a lot of the myths out there um, with news stories that come out. And it's just so great. I think it's so important that, like she said, that you follow evidence-based science accounts when it comes to foods, products, and everything regarding your kids. So thanks again, Erin, Food Science Babe. I really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having me again. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, please leave a review, share it with a friend, comment on my social media and if you're not already follow me at peds doc talk on instagram love doing this for all of you have a great rest of your week take care talk to you soon
Hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking It.